Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. How you doing? Good. Yeah, you got more books on your shelf than I do. <laughs> okay. At least on that shelf. I see Titan. I see several things that we know. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice to finally meet you and glad we're able yeah. to connect. Thank you for making this happen. I really sure, do appreciate thank it. you. Uh, just to kind of get started, when did you first uh, start reading the New York Times? I mean, I was about eight or nine. Yeah, I was probably about that young. I mean, you know, I grew up in Westchester County in New York, and the New York Times came to our house every day. So I was probably as young as I can imagine, probably eight or nine, maybe 10. But it was always a big part of our lives. I mean, were you hooked immediately? You know, back in the days, uh, Dorothy Schiff in the Post was somewhat liberal. Uh, Pete Hamill was writing for the Post. Uh, a lot of things have changed. We had the uh, the Herald Tribune and Walter Lippmann. That's right. I guess I, I was hooked immediately. I mean, in my in my family, I don't remember reading tabloids and New York Post Daily News, you know, until many years later. So I just remember there being the New York Times and the Village Voice. My mm-hmm. parents read the Village Voice. That was it. Oh, Norman Miller and Nat Hentoff. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was, those were great days to be living in New York. Yeah, yeah. Great newspaper town. No, and, and as your as your book uh, extols it, there's been more uh, more turbulence in, on your watch than in the previous hundred years. I think so. I mean, um, I, one thing about the book is there was a lot of sort of episodes to write about, and there was an overall narrative arc as we found it kind of adjusting to this new world. Mm-hmm. Um digital world and that was a big change so there was a lot to write about well i guess we we both go back to uh to gate to in the kingdom of the power i was 22 when i read it and at that uh, we're just a couple of years apart uh the thought was well gee i wish I, i'd love to be a journalist but i'm too old my career path <laughs> in, the, in the garment business has already been laid out there's no going back and who knew <laughs> You know, yeah, no such thing is too old. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm certain. I know you, you, you mentioned Gay, uh, Gay, and also uh, Tiffin and Jones in your book. The other, yeah, I guess these are now, I guess, the three books that belong in any, any serious student of the New York Times's uh, bookshelf. But uh, how did, uh, when did you first come across Gay's book, and how did it influence you? Uh, in the so beginning, I, and of course now. Yeah, I probably came across Gay's book in college. Um, I read it pretty early. And it, I think it's one of the reasons that I decided I wanted to work at the Times. I just thought it was such a cool story and such a cool place. And he told that book, he told that story so well. If you go back and read it now, it's still a terrific book. Um, and I think that planted the idea in my head that one day I would like to sort of pick up where he left off. I, I could never hope to aspire to be a writer of his quality. I mean, there are a few of them in our in our time, but I figured I'd try. So after I um I signed the contract for this book. I went to Gay Lisa's house just to sort of talk to him about it. And I knocked on the door and he opened the door and he said, I've been waiting for 15 years for someone to do this book. And then he invited me in and, you know, went through his own ideas of how to write it and gave, opened his Rolodex and told me people to talk to and show me his own papers. He's just been a you know, prince from start to finish on this. Well, it almost sounds like a line from a film noir where, you know, the guy had killed someone 20 years ago and no one, or like uh, Martin Landau in Crimes and Misdemeanors, he wants to pay and no one right. wants to come and get him. And, and right. there you were. There I was. 
So I was very lucky. He's been great during the whole thing. And, and that, that chronicled, well, I guess the book was published in 69. So it, right. it came up to the arrival of, of Punch after the uh, pre, uh, premature death of Orville Dreyfus. But then after that, uh, Jones and Tiffin wrote an, an equally important book uh, called The Trust. And, uh, and about yeah. the, uh, the the trust that existed from the uh, from the uh, Sulzberger family and what they felt they were obligated uh, to give to New York and to the world, or certainly the United States. Yeah, that's also a terrific book. Um, Alex and Susan were great reporters and writers, and they took on the story of the New York Times through the family, through the Sulzberger family, and they chart the whole history of the Sulzberger since they and the Ox since they bought the paper and. Um, I think their book is a little bit more oriented at the family and at the business side than my book, which is more oriented at the newspaper. They did, you know, the newsroom. They did such a good job on that. There wasn't really much left for me to say. But no, I think I, the, three, was, the three books in, in total yeah. uh, could be like a master's course in studying the uh, the biography of a great international newspaper. Because yeah, between the three, right. you've covered all the elements in somewhat uh, differing styles, but uh, ultimately uh, kind of getting at the truth. So I'm going to go back to uh, to your career at the Times. You, uh, uh, 1996, right? Uh, the world was on the cusp of a great many changes. Had you been uh, practicing journalism, uh, maybe in, in in school, or just prior to this? Or was that your first yeah, job? Yeah, I had been. No, it was my third job. I think fourth job. I had always wanted to be a journalist since I went to college, or since I was a freshman in college. In fact, I'd always wanted to work in the New York Times, and it took a while to get there. My first job was in Westchester at the Reporter Dispatch in White Plains. And then I got hired at the Daily News in New York, where I went to work in the state capitol. After that, I got picked up by USA Today to cover the 1992 presidential campaign. Um, and then I joined the New York Times in 1996. So I guess I've been doing this for a long, long time. In various Who hired papers. At the Times, it was a combination of people, including Andy Rosenthal and Johnny Apple Abe's, and Abe's Michael Eskins. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was gone by then. Joe Lillybell was the executive editor okay. uh, at the time. I think that was my last, as I recall, that was my final interview. It was a good well, time I mean, to personalities join. play such a huge part in this. Uh, just go back a little bit prior to your time. Yeah. So we have uh, Orville Dreyfus, uh, who had succeeded Arthur Hayes Salzberger as the, the publisher. And at that point, I believe Punch was about 37 or Arthur Ox Salzberger. Right. Yeah. Arthur, yeah, Arthur Jr., I guess he was in those days. Wasn't it? Was it Arthur R. I keep confusing all of these Arthurs now. Yeah. It was I, Arthur Hayes Salzberger was his father. Right. I keep a chart when I was writing the book, so I didn't. I didn't mix it. But in any up, event, but yeah, yeah, very young, and now he's inserted into this role that he he really probably hasn't had enough preparation for. But but there he is. Uh, sort of like the first, I would say, really rough waters at the times in a turbulent period to get through. Talk about Punch, uh, what he accomplished, and and the legacy that he he left. Yeah, I mean, I think there were some doubts when he started because he was very young, and as you said, he got thrust into the job because of the death. Uh, of his father-in-law, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not going to try to make sure I get that no, is <laughs> right. Um, and I think that his legacy was that he was a very fine publisher. People really liked him, which I think counted a lot. I think he was very devoted to the mission of the paper, was what what we see with the Salzburgers generally over the generations. And um, I think he turned over a paper to his son that was better than the one that he got, which I guess is the best way to judge. You know, he had his shortcomings for sure, some of which we write about. He was. Part of an era where, um, you know, what I think most people consider sexist and even lack of uh, 
diversity in the paper was very kind of common. But, you know, I think the paper was very good. It was under him that they developed, the paper developed like the special sections devoted to living and dining and um, science that really in some ways revolutionized what the New York Was that really more... Was that more Abe, more Abe Rosenthal or was it a collaborative effort? So I would argue, after going through all the documents, that it was actually more punch, Salzberger, mm-hmm. that he knew the paper was facing a bit of a crisis. People were moving out of New York City at the time. This was in the late 70s. Um, advertisers were fleeing. They needed to do something. And, you know, Abe Rosenthal was resistant to the idea initially of doing stuff that would cater to the paper's business side, right? It's this long struggle and tension. And I think that, um, I think I know that Punch probably convinced them that they needed to do it. And there's a part where he writes a memo, where Abe writes a memo saying, you know, he realizes at some point, if they don't deal with this revenue situation, Punch Solzberger is going to come to him and say, do we really need two music reviewers or four, whatever it was at the time? Do we really need to be sending reporters all over the world? So I think he decided to proactively join it. And you know, when he was done with it, like when he looked at the results, again, the dining section, and he got all the praise for it. I mean, there was some ribbing, too, as I'm sure you remember. But the praise for it, he was like, this was a good idea. Why didn't we do it earlier? <laughs> yeah. And talk a little bit about Abe, who had a, certainly had a, uh, a pugnacious reputation. Uh, what what did he bring? I want let's first let's kind of define terms. At that point, he yeah. was the executive editor. Uh, what does yeah. the executive editor at the New York Times do? Which is daily uh, ritual. So the executive editor, which he got the appointment in nineteen end of nineteen seventy six, is the person who's in charge of the newsroom. Who's the person in charge of every sort of aspect of the newsroom, not the editorial page, um, not the business side, but what the newspaper looks like every day, what it covers where it sends people, what its priorities are. And it covers, I mean, I, I mainly focus on the newsroom itself, but it covers culture and sports and, you know, every kind of department you can imagine. It's a very powerful job. And because you decide at the, at the time, the front page is a really big deal. You decide what's on the front page. You decide who's hired. You decide who goes where. Um, and you kind of decide, like, what is going to decide, define the times, like what is what it's going to cover, how it's going to distinguish itself. So it's a powerful job. And Rosenthal worked his way up. He was a distinguished correspondent. He won two Pulitzer Awards, one or two Pulitzer Awards. He was in Japan. He was in Poland. If you go back and read his stuff, it was extraordinary. Um, they brought him back to be an editor. And in some ways, I think he was an excellent executive editor to the sense that he had a really good sense of news. He could see where things were going. He kept the paper ahead. He gave it an edge. He was just a smart guy. But he was also a bit of a bully, which we talk about in this book. And um, I don't, you know, he was mean to people. He was dismissive of people that he thought weren't smart. Um, He was, I think, I would argue, a little bit too uh, solicitous of powerful people in his life, you know, including Donald Trump, by the way. I think at the end of the day, he would not have survived today, mainly because of the way that he treated people, um, which is not to take away anything from his journalism. There's um, there's one editor that I who did an oral history that I refer to in there who just hated, this is Al Siegel, and he just hated Abe Rosenthal, just hated And he never talked about it at the time. He just did it in these secret tapes he did that he didn't release until after he was gone from the newsroom. And but he said that as much as he hated him, he noticed that when Rosenthal wasn't there, the paper lost a certain edge, that he had to concede that as much he was difficult to deal with, as an unpleasant person he could be, 
that the paper approved was even the newsroom every day. How would you, for example, thinking of somebody else who's strong but different, I'm thinking of Ben Bradley at, at the Post, uh, mm-hmm. another executive editor who had an enormous impact on, uh, on, on policy at some level in the United States. Uh, how do you look at the two of them? Would appear to me, not knowing as much about Bradley as I seem to know about Rosenthal, that he took they they took different paths to get the same objective. Is I that think fair? so. <clears throat> I think so too. But I'm going to be I'm going to kind of refrain from talking about that because I never did the kind of research or reporting around Bradley or the Washington Post newsroom, so I don't feel I can be as qualified or as authoritative in talking about him. But I I do know that um, Abe and Abe Rosenthal and Bradley had a cordial if competitive <laughs> relationship as you can well imagine i could i can well imagine yeah and i i appreciate i appreciate your uh your position on that uh then a little bit after that we get i think all these guys all wrote books well not all of them but uh, max yeah, frankel for them. example yeah. his life uh his life at the times uh a different style of editor who i think felt that he should have been the editor before rosenthal but stuck around is that a fair reading of all this yeah, so what happened is that they were both competing to be the executive editor. This is after Max was in charge of the, at the time, the Sunday paper, which was a different operation. No reason to go into all the details here. And, you know, Punch Solzberger picked Abe Rosenthal. I don't even think it was a close call for him. He just thought Abe Rosenthal was, would be better and he was friends with him. And I think Max, I know Max Frankel was disappointed. He sent him to be editor of the editorial page. And I don't, I think, you know, what, Frankel didn't realize at the time, but he came to realize it, is that when you're editor of the editorial page, you are dealing with the publisher pretty much every day, right? So in a way, it was inevitable that when it came time for Frank for uh, Roosevelt to leave, that Frankel would be at the head of the line to succeed him. And he just had to wait for his time, and it came. And how, how was he received, and, and uh, how would you evaluate the work that he did in that position? So when he first came in, he talked about himself as, I think, the non-Abe or the on-Abe. He was given the ma- the mandate to, I think, as Punch put it to him, make the newsroom a happy place again. And he tried to do that. Um, I think he was more amenable. He went to reporter parties. He walked around the newsroom, complimented stories. Yeah, I don't want to sugarcoat this. I mean, he, like, for example, his front page meetings, which he ran, could be brutal and he could be really on people as well. But I think he changed the tenure of the paper a lot. Um, and to your, the sort of atmosphere, I'm sorry, the atmosphere of the paper a lot. And to your question, you know, when I got to the end of a section, I was trying to figure out, um, I divide the book into sections by each executive editor. And I was trying to sort of summarize what he was like as executive editor. And I think he was very successful. He might not have been as aggressive or as tax clearing as A. Rosenthal was, but he ran what most people would say a very good paper that ran lots of won lots of filters and that just kept turning along and doing what it did. I think he should be proud of his tenure. Had his had his problems, which we talk about for sure. But overall, well, at you know at the period when you arrive, uh, I mean the world was undergoing um, massive changes, uh, which had uh, an enormous impact on on journalism. Uh, right. Before we even start talking about uh, the internet. Uh, we look at 2008 and we look at the decline of uh, departments that are advertising. We've gone from oh, yeah. having you know, B. Altman, Lord and Taylor, Bloomingdale's, uh, you know, on and on and on and on mm-hmm. to basically a, a nation filled with Macy's who may go bankrupt at any day uh, uh, today. And yet 
there were any number of full page uh, ads uh, and double truck ads in the New York Times from a half a dozen or more newspapers every day, which contributed significant uh, revenue to, uh, to the old uh, operational budget. And then we have something called Craigslist, where if you were wanted to place a classified ad for an employee, uh, it may take a week before it ever got published. By the time you submitted it, it passed through, boom, boom, boom. Well, now you can make a phone call at 11.30 to Craigslist on a Friday, and by 12 o'clock, you've got 50 applicants for your job. So right. major, major portions of revenue, which support everything in the newspaper, evaporated overnight. It would seem to me almost overnight. Uh, and, then we have, and then we have the Internet. So uh, talk, I, I also mentioned Arthur Gelb, who also wrote a memoir, uh, right. when being basically there. fundamentally told, if we don't jump on the Internet, we're going to be out of business. He says, <laughs> gentlemen, should we open the window and jump now or right. wait? Right. So kind of address those issues because you, you, you were on board when this was going on. Yeah, the paper confronted a bunch of uh, crises. One is, as you said, the decline in the advertising market in general, right, which right. they thought originally was cyclical, it turned out not to be. The other was, and this was huge, the loss of, of classified advertisements. The paper made tons of money. There was two sections every Sunday devoted to apartments and cars and all kinds of stuff. And that disappeared overnight. I mean, Craigslist was one of them. I mean, just overall, they just disappeared. And some people saw that coming. But I think the third and most existential one was just the idea that people were going to start consuming their news on the web, on the internet. And there were well, what, some- what, Exactly, what do you, what, where, what's that time frame? When is that really beginning to happen, seriously? Well, you can see the first signs of it in the early 90s, right? Okay. You know, you could see it. And you could see some editors, some people in the newsroom, and, you know, I chart this through in the book, like seeing what was going on. Now, some people resisted it. Like Rosenthal, for example, you know, I found a speech or a, something, you know, an interview he gave where he said, no, you know, no one is ever going to read the newspaper out of a black box. They're always going to want to have the feeling of paper in their hands, right? Well, he was wrong. But on the other hand, there are other people who are saying that it's just a matter of time until the newspaper becomes totally digital with all the implications for paid circulation and advertising. And one of the people who I think saw the future turns was Arthur Sulzberger Jr. Um, now, as you know, he began his career as a wire service reporter which means that he didn't have the kind of rhythmic devotion to the, hey, I'm writing a story. It's going to get published in the paper the next morning. When you're a wire service reporter, you write a story and bam, it's posted, right? So he never had that. And the second thing is um, he was always a science fiction slash Star Trek fan. And he would talk about how, I don't care how we get the information into our readers' heads, we can beam it into their head as long as we get it there. And I think that mindset made this long and often difficult transition happen i would not Do you think speaking of of, of uh, arthur jr who I, who was known as pinch uh was he a little bit like his father he's kind of into the, in this role when he's quite young uh same age. and how same age. a lot of uh, a, a lot of learning steps to go through how complicated well you were there when he came on board yeah i mean it was i mean the, the problem that he had i think his father had too was that People were like, is this guy ready to be publisher? He seems too young. In Arthur Jr.'s case, he seemed a little bit too flippant and too slight. Um, people thought that for a long time about him. Unlike his father, he wasn't the kind of person that made feel made people feel very comfortable around them. He's a little awkward. Um, I mean, I think it's tough being a Soulsburger. It's tough stepping 
excuse me, into a role like that. Well, it's tough being a I, son in general. That's right, especially a son of someone who's such a big deal. Sure. But, you know, I have to say, look, you know, by the time I came to the end of the book, I think that the legacy of Arthur Salzberger Jr. is extremely positive. Like, he had some bad things that happened on his watch, for sure. We, we could talk about them if you want. Judith Miller, Jason Blair. Sure. But at the end of the day, the newspaper that he left when he stepped down in 2018, 2016, what, had made this transition. It's a digital newspaper. It is making money from transcribers. And it's ahead of, I think, every other newspaper in the field. And at the end of the day, I think that's how you have to judge the legacy of Arthur Sulzberger. The paper could very well have gone out of business or become a reduced version of itself like so many other American newspapers have in the past eight years. You know, I, I would tip my hat to him there as well. I mean, I probably like a lot of people, not that I have the right to, but I, I was, I, I thought he was too young. I mean, I, he was, right. he was pinch. He wasn't punch. I, right. I didn't right. see the gravitas at that point. And maybe he never really had it. And maybe to some degree, they're still ch- chasing Arthur Hayes and a legacy that he left behind for, for, for the entire family. But no, as you say, uh, there's a very, very difficult period for him to step in and to navigate those waters and, and get to the point. I mean, I read you online every day. Or you know, I read the paper every day on, online, right. and I I'm one of those people. I I buy the uh, international here on Saturday because I yeah. well because I do my crossword puzzles in, in ink and I get two crossword puzzles <laughs> for the price of one newspaper. I can't do it online; it just doesn't doesn't work. Right, you know, doesn't, doesn't work. work. Right. But right. I but I read you. I read it pretty much every day. Uh, lots of things happened while just prior to and while you were there. Uh, let's let's begin with with women in the you know and and Betsy Wade, uh, yeah. and give some time sequence for the readers who have not yet uh, read the book and what that was all about and the status of women at the times today. We can obviously go through Jill Abramson, but let's kind of run a little bit of a timeline and uh, a history of women at the times. Yeah, so in 1976, a group of women filed suit against the paper. The women were drastically underrepresented in the editing ranks, in the senior writing ranks, and in salary. And Betsy Wade, who you mentioned, she's the lead plaintiff on the suit. Um, And she's a great symbol of this. She was the first woman news copy editor. She talked to me about how difficult the environment was when she was working there. Um, She tells one story about there was a period when the Times allowed the tunes in the newsroom. We would choose tobacco and spit them out. McSorley's and old alehouse. <laughs> that's right. And they banned, they finally banned them. But there was one copy editor who kept bringing, coming to work with a big coffee can and he would spit his, uh, whatever you're going to Tobacco juice. <laughs> that's right. And then when he walked past her every day, he would swirl it around. It would make her want to wretch and she, wretch. And she thought that was just harassment, you know, and she, but she made, she was very proud. She was careful not to, show her discomfort. And she talks about like being in the newsroom at six o'clock at night and looking around and realizing she was the only woman there. It was really hard. And so she was one of the women who joined this lawsuit. She talks about being in the elevator one day with a man named Sidney Grusin, who you might've heard of. He was a big deal aide to the publisher and editor in his own right. He was married to another and, journalist. That's right. And I am now forgetting who it was. So am I. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A very, very pretty girl from LA. If I can say Thomas, pretty girl right? from L.A. Yeah, well, <laughs> sure. In this day and age. But he turned to her and he goes, we are not in the habit of promoting people who sue us. And Betsy never, Betsy's extraordinarily talented. She never raised above writing the Practical Traveler column. I love the Practical Traveler column, but I think she would have raised a lot higher. Now, the suit succeeded. And as a result, many women who have prominent careers at the time, uh, Gail Collins, Anna Quinlan, 
Soma Bear, Soma Golden Bear, attribute their success there to this lawsuit. It was a very consequential lawsuit. Um, it still took until you know 2010 till they had its first ex- woman executive editor. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, this is uh, Jill Abramson, which I guess is another story. Right. That's we can, we can, we can get to that. Yeah. Well, and we also had, we had we had issues with uh, African-Americans in the workplace. Yeah, it took the paper a long time. It was a day for blacks and other people of color had to file a suit as well. Um, the paper always struggled to get enough blacks and other people of color in high positions or even reporting positions. You can find... Um, I came across a speech that Arthur Punchholzberger gave in 1969, lamenting this. And that I, I think it was absolutely genuine. He was like talking to his editors and he's like, we have to deal with this. It's not, you know, this is obviously in the middle of the beginning of the civil rights movement. Sure. It's wrong. There's so few, at this point, he was talking about black people, black reporters and editors in the paper. We need to deal with this. But, and you see editors and publishers saying that again and again over the years. And it's just for all kinds of reasons, it just doesn't succeed. And, I write about one kind of tragic case of this. There was a managing editor named Gerald Boyd mm-hmm. uh, who came in. He was the first uh, black man who was a managing editor. And he um, ended up getting fired as part of the Jason Blair uh, plagiarism scandal, fabrication scandal. And it's a very sad story. And it's a reminder of how how much trouble the newspaper had in dealing with um, issues of, of people of color. But on, I think... But- in daily coverage, my if I memory serves, yeah, were yeah, certainly liberal. No, no question. But I would draw the this is an interesting question. Clearly, the editorial page is very liberal. Um, the paper tries to be more down the middle, of course. But your choices of stories and who you focus on and who you quote always reflect, to some extent, your own personal feelings. And I don't want to say biases; that's too strong a word, but your own personal feelings. But so you can see that sometimes in the coverage, but not in the newsroom. Look, the newsroom. The Times is made up of, you know, very much, at least when I started writing this book, elite, Ivy League, white men. That's those. That's who dominated the newsroom. And it took a long time to change that. It, you know, the paper, the paper was very traditionalist and it was slow to change. I do think that it has changed now. I think it's changed dramatically over the past couple of years. This thing that took so long finally began to, finally began to change. Well, you, so had, Dean, you, you had Dean as, as the executive editor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. First black man who was executive editor. Right. Yeah, without I mean, and with no bells and whistles going on about it, it just seemed to be like he was the right guy for the job. He was there, give him the job. I mean, that's that's right. That's right. And he never like, I mean, I let Dean speak for himself. He never like defined himself as you know a black executive editor or a black journalist. He was an executive editor who was also the first black journalist, a black executive editor of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Big big difference. Well, let's go. Let's go back and talk about the net and Martin Niesenholz, as we referenced. Yeah, because I, I think that is such a a pivotal moment in, in the long term life of the the Times, as you as you explain. It could very well have gone gone by the boards or become, uh, you know, like like a shopping journal or something. Uh, God forbid. Uh, yeah. Talk about him. Penny saver. <laughs> yeah, who who brought him in uh, and, and stuck with him to make that uh, make this paper, uh, you know, survive and thrive. You know, Arthur Jr. brought him in to run the sort of digital operation, um, and it was a tough job. I mean, you know, Martin talks about how he felt so kind of distanced from the and not disrespected, but ignored by much of the newsroom that wasn't taking what he was doing seriously. And at one point, 
he, they were working in a separate office up the street from the Times building. And he took an office, the digital people were, and he took an office in the newsroom just so he could be more present and people would get to talk to him and accept him as being part of the whole New York Times operation. And he talked about being in his office and people walking by and never saying hello. And it wasn't that they were hostile. They just didn't care or take him seriously. But mm -hmm. I think that what he was pioneering is a large reason why the New York Times is what it is today. He was very forward-looking. He was, um, uh, and I think I said he, like he, he's very smart and he knew it. <laughs> and and um, um, Solzberger told me that he was probably the best hire he ever made. He was very happy with him. And I think that he was a big part of the reason for the, of the uh, of the transformation of the newspaper to the digital era. And now it's kind of easy, right? That's the, the, you know, the paper is digital first in every way. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it wasn't. And he was the one who was thinking about it. When they were creating the digital, when they were creating the website, the idea of a digital paper, he wanted to avoid, as he would put it, the, it just being newspaper.com. In other words, take the paper version of the paper and put it on the web. He tried to get it to do more different things. And it did some, but nothing like today. Because people at the time were just thinking, some of the own executive editors were thinking this paper should only be about the, the web should only be about promoting within the paper already. But of course, that's not enough. And he understood that. Well, I guess he saw the wave because now you have uh, all all the videos and all the in interactive activity uh, around everything that's that's there uh, that could never obviously been done in a, in a printed page. Uh, and right. we've taken, you know, uh, people now have changed their habits. Uh, well, there's obviously a generation, my my grandchildren's generation, who uh, hasn't been a New York Times in that house uh, probably since they were born. And yet uh, it was I always bet. in my home. I bet. And they're probably getting their news, hopefully from the New York Times app, but if not, they're getting their news off their phone. That's the way people get it now. And No, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's too immediate. Uh, it's just. Uh, yeah. the, the time delay is uh, is so so long, but then we can get some interesting, uh, you know, longer uh, longer form pieces. But even here on on the web, uh, the pieces are longer. Uh, That's right. You know, not as before. Uh, this is a, a totally uh, uh, tangential to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, as a as a Brooklyn half uh, Ashkenazi half Sephardic Jew, I've always been <laughs> a little bit uh, perplexed or upset. At some uh, so the way that uh, the Times has covered Israel, or if you go back right. and look look during during the Holocaust, a uh, very very little coverage uh, uh, evolved right. out of the Times. I don't want to blame the, the Salzburgers because they're German Jews who don't really ex expect, think of us as Jews. Being facetious here, but uh, that it and we're uh, uh, frightened at some level of being perceived as being too Jewish. Uh, you know, maybe that's unfair, but it's kind of from the outside. Uh, and then I, I, I look at, you know, more recently, it was a long time, I think, before uh, Friedman got to Jerusalem, uh, David Shipler, my, you never had a Jewish editor in, 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 in Israel, uh, in, or Tel Aviv or Jerusalem at that point. That seems to be changing. Uh, do you have any, any perspective on that outside of personal feelings about how the, how the Times has tried to navigate being the paper of record, uh, trying to be as even-handed as possible, but at the same time, uh, not being afraid to call the the massacre on, on the seventh what it was, and then continue with discussions about the future of Israel and Palestine. Somebody uh, I know who is a, uh, a, a Jerusalem bureau chief once told me that it's the most difficult job at the newspaper, and this is before September seventh, right? It's really hard, and um, it occurred to me when I finished this book that during this time frame, 
I don't write about Israel, not because, not out of disrespect, but because it wasn't that big a deal in the Times coverage mm-hmm. during this period. Obviously, if I was writing a book now, if I was writing about the subsequent post-2016 period, because the book basically ends in 2016, Israel will be a, a big deal. And for a lot of reasons, what we're watching now is the paper just struggling with all these different forces, the the need for immediacy and coverage fast get stories up, hence the problem with the hospital bombing story, sure. um, the real sort of polarization of the country over this issue, over every issue, but over this issue, the assumption by readers often that actors, editors, and reporters are acting in bad faith or reflecting their own prejudice. It's just a very difficult time to operate. Um, but again, I think this is something that would need to be dealt with in the next book, and I think it will be. Yeah, no, no, I, no, I, I agree. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not this part. I'm, I'm less critical yeah. now than I would have been of the coverage, uh, you know, during, uh, during, uh, during uh, the Second World War. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it, that's it is, a whole other thing. It's kind yeah. of like, can yeah. you imagine being a steward or a stewardess on an LL flight? You have 300 Jews going to Israel, and they all right. want their coffee at a certain, at a certain temperature at a certain time. Right. <laughs> so I, I can understand. Um, so uh, you're now you're you're now based in LA. You were you were right. a cultural correspondent. Seemed for well, you're also I was the, yeah the bureau chief. I was so I went from being the national political reporter in 2010 after Obama after writing about that and went to Los Angeles to become the Los Angeles bureau chief, mm-hmm. which I did until I took a leave to write this book. Came back to become the West Coast culture reporter, which is an interesting <laughs> job. As Woody Allen job. would say, there's that's an, a, a contradiction in terms, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what made the story so interesting is like everyone kind of assumes that. So the fact that I think it's not true or the extent to which it's not true made it a good kind of. It's a good one liner. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, not true. Oh, it's a good, but it's a good one liner. Yeah. And then I came back and now I'm doing national politics again. So national politics. Yeah. Okay. Presidential, we got a few yeah. minutes. We can grab that. But I, uh, whatever happened to Bernie Weinraub? I used to like reading and uh, what's he yeah, been up Bernie's- to? Bernie's still out here. Bernie's out in Los Angeles. Like he came to one of my book parties. Um, he'd been the, new, he'd been the, the film critic at, the, it's, uh, at that point, wasn't he? Was covered Hollywood. He was covered Hollywood. Oh, different, different entirely. And he yeah. covered, he's in the book, too. He covered the White House. He was around for a long, long time, and then he left, and he began being a, became a playwright. I think he's doing really well. He seemed very happy. So. Okay, yeah, because I, I, I thought, you know, when he disappeared, I, I, I missed his work. So uh, national politics, uh, maybe you start, you're covering local politics at some point, I guess, or you can't. Well, when I started in sorry, LA, when I started, well, I covered New York politics. Okay. That's how I started. And, you know, Giuliani and Dinkins and, you know, great, Whoa. you know, yeah. Right. And then I covered when I came out here, I just, I didn't, I, I wrote about state politics to some extent, but generally I tried to write about national, national excuse me, California, from a more national perspective, kind of broad story to tell. Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing presidential politics again. Good thing to do for a while. Well, what, what, what's, your, what's your gut feeling here? Uh, is Nikki Haley's noise, uh, uh, somebody I think was writing about it being a smoke, no, it might, might have been Paul Krugman today, about it all being a smokescreen. Where, where do you see Nikki Haley? Where do you, where do you, is Donald going to physically or legally survive? Uh, you know, so many questions there. Yeah, I mean, I saw I, Nikki Haley, I think, has been a pretty impressive candidate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I thought to, at the last debate, she did really well. And if, if I was the Biden people, I would be worried that she might somehow get the nomination. I'm not sure she he could beat her. I mean, I just think that younger woman, I thought she 
had an interesting way of finessing the abortion rights issue. Mm -hmm. Now, all that said, at this point, she's got a tough road to take the nomination away from Donald Trump. I mean, I just think that she's at, she's out of sync with a lot of Trump voters. I've been doing this long enough to know, don't predict anything. anything oh, no, we, we have a year to go. <laughs> we have a year to go. But I think that she's somebody that people should keep pay attention to, if not in 2024, certainly in 2028. I think she's really interesting. Um, you know, right now you have an election between, uh, presumably you have a contest between the, a rerun contest between these two older guys, nothing wrong with being older. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult for people to pay attention because they feel like they want, they've been to this again. There's a big hunger for change. Uh, on the other hand, this is probably as consequential an election as we've had in our lifetimes. And I always say that people in my business always say that it's generally not true. But in this case, I think it is true. So I think it's, it might be a bit of a slog of a campaign, but it's a really important one. So yeah, it seems from the okay. perspective of living here in Europe, uh, yep. certainly we, we see the, the demonstrations, a reaction to uh, to the massacre and then the, the you know, the incursion yeah. into Gaza. You call it what you want. Uh, certainly much more visible here on the street uh, here, certainly in London, where 300,000 people uh, popped out. Mm -hmm. uh, but all these events in Ukraine. We have that with the relationship with China. You know, it, it seems that we, you know, I feel like, or maybe the president feels like he's the uh, woman with her fingers in the dike, doesn't have enough fingers to fill all the holes uh, right. simultaneously. You, you know, yeah. you, where, you know, where do we go with all of that? I mean, is it, are we really at the, uh, are we really witnessing the, the end of America as uh, you and I knew it growing up? Or am I just being overly reactionary? Um, Reactionary not doing, and not in the political no, sense. What you mean. Yeah, alarmist, right? Yeah, alarmist. Um, you're, not, you're not the only one I've heard say that. I mean, I will say this. I, it does feel like a more a time of more turmoil and unease and worry about the future than I can remember. It seems worse uh, than in the 60s. I remember all that turmoil after Vietnam. It just feels sure. like we're in a bad place. Um, I don't know how it's going to end up. I wouldn't dare to predict it. Um, I think a big question is whether or not Trump goes back to the White House a lot or not. And then if he doesn't, what happens afterwards? We're just in a really difficult period here. I mean, Trump has a lot of supporters. So uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, I would say it's astonishing, but it, you know, I guess it is what it is. We just have a couple of minutes. I want to want to thank you for the book, yeah. Adam. I, I, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. it uh, as I thank said, you. now it has a place on my on my bookshelf, and I have to go out now and replace uh, the Olson Tiff book and the uh, the Gate to Lees because I, when I moved here, I had to sell my library. So somebody has them back in. I had to sell two thousand books. I couldn't bring them here. Wow. Okay. So I'm, I'm okay. rebuilding, you know, rebuilding yeah. <laughs> book by book by book. Uh, so at the end of the day, what do you hope people get out of this? And uh, what are your feelings about uh, about the times? I want to ask you to give me Well, you already given your opinion on, on Arthur Jr. How about Arthur Gregg, the, uh, the the heir? Yeah, I mean, like I write about him in the book earlier on the earlier parts of his career, in particular, writing the innovation report, which is sort of laying out the pathwork for how the paper has to transform itself. Um, I think it's way too early to um, I think it's way too early to kind of figure out how well he'll do as publisher. Um, we're right in the middle of it. He faces some enormous challenges in terms of balancing off the way to maintain New York Times what it is, but also deal with this sort of quick pace imperative for change and readers and all that. Um, and so far, he seems to be doing well, but I think we'll figure that out in a while. I mean, he does seem to have a lot of confidence in the newsroom, and I think that counts for a lot. 
And we're going to get cut off by the Zoom thing, but I want to thank you again okay. for being here. I hope we okay. can stay in touch and talk again in the future. Uh, this has been okay. great. Thank and you. I really appreciate you doing this. I really do. I, I thank do. you very much. And, and if I have, if I may, I'd like to chat with you some at some point off off camera. I think I still have your nine one seven number. Yep. Anytime. Okay. Thank you very much, Adam. Take Adam Nagorny, The Times. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com. And subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris.